Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Now, I'm looking around. We're surrounded by the, the, the Killarne development, and I know a lot of you live in Killarne Acres that has this strange-sounding street names like Man of War and Majestic Prince and Whirl Away and all these good things. And if you didn't know, all of these, of course, are named after previous Kentucky Derby winners. And if you don't know, now you know. But none of these champions were as unlikely to win as this year's winner of this year's Kentucky Derby. And of course, I'm talking about Rich Strike. So Rich Strike was a horse that wasn't even supposed to be in the race. Rich Strike was, was sort of on the waiting list, so to speak. And it was Friday night, the Derby's run on Saturday, and they let Rich Strike's owners and trainers know, hey, one of our horses had to scratch does Rich Strike want to run? And they're like, sure, Rich Strike can run. Now, they have to understand he's going to run, but they're going to put him on the very outside okay, of the, of, the, of the starting gate. So he's on the outside, not the inside. Now, when we run track meets, we stagger that, right, to make up for that. That doesn't work so well for horses, right? So it's just kind of this free-for-all. And so Real Strike enters as an 80-to-1 shot to win. And as the bell goes off and the, and the horses go around the track, you don't see much of real strike until about three quarters of a mile in, around that final turn, right before they head down the, the straightaway. And then all of a sudden, you begin to see him make the moves, and he's weaving in and out of horses, and he passes the two winners, and he finishes first. One of the greatest shocking upsets in the history of the Kentucky Derby. And what's interesting, and obviously there's a, there's a little spiritual lesson here, it's, it's not so much about where you start, right? It's about how you finish and where you finish. And that's, in a lot of ways, I think, can capture where we are in our study of the book of Romans. This series, which we're calling Rags to Righteous, we've been in the book of Romans now for almost a year. And we're coming around that three-quarters of a mile turn. You can see the finish line um, down the straightaway coming up. And we're going to be spending this coming season all the way up to Christmas in these last five chapters. But in a real way, as important and as foundational as chapters 1 through 11 have been, and they're, they're amazing, the richest chapters in all the Bible, in some ways we can say our study on the book of Romans is not complete. It's, it hasn't accomplished all that God has set it forth for until we've wrapped our arms around these last five chapters. You see, everything Paul has talked about up to this point now has a conclusion, a therefore, an application. This is, this is Paul's concern for us in these last five chapters that we will not just be hearers of the word, but we will be what? Doers of the word. And I know lots of people, I went to seminary with some of them, who are experts on Romans 1 through 11. They know it backwards and forwards. They know about the providence of God. They, they, know, they seem to know more about Romans 9 through 11 than the Apostle Paul himself. And they can tell you anything about Romans 1 through 11, but when it comes to Romans 12, they stink. And maybe that's some of us. Maybe that's me. And Paul, that's, that's not running a complete race. Paul wants us to embrace all of Romans. And in essence, Romans 12 through 16 is the how shall we then live portion of this letter. 
It's the practical outworking and application of all that's gone before. So it's, it's kind of like we're asking, so, so Apostle Paul, tell us, what are we to do with all this theology? What are we to do with all these great expositions of doctrine and theology? And Romans 12 through 16 is Paul's answer to that question. And he's going to summarize, in essence for us, these, this morning, in these first two verses of Romans 12, the heart of the Christian faith, the essence of what it is that we are to be about as believers. And these are going to be two of the most famous, well-known verses in all the Bible. They're calligraphied somewhere in your house on some pillow, right, or precious moments figurine. I know they are. But our prayer this morning is that God would give us not new truth, but new insight to the truth that's always been there. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning, and we're going to read Romans 12, 1 through 2. 1 through 2. Here we go. Hear the word of God, Four Oaks. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we really, really do need your help. Because these truths, for some of us, um, are so well-known. We've heard so many sermons and talks and Bible studies about them that they can, they can grow dull. And it's not your word that's growing dull, Lord. It's our hearts. It's our senses. It's our minds. And so that's why we're asking that you would enlighten us, empower us with your Holy Spirit this morning. Have your way with us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. There's some people, when you meet them, it kind of takes you a while to figure them out, right? Maybe they're a little more introverted or closed. They don't share their feelings. They're sort of kind of uh, a little more stoic. There's other people there you meet. You don't have that problem. You know what they're about right off the bat because they'll tell you, right? You know their MO. All their cards are on the table. Um, Isn't it interesting that these two people often marry each other? That's so fun, I think. And if you're wondering which of those you are, just ask your spouse. They'll tell you. If you, are, if, you're the, if you don't know who the jerk is in the relationship, you are the jerk, right? Now, Paul, we're not going to call him a jerk, okay? Um, I see all the knowing glances among the spouses this morning. It's so fun to be up here and see this. Paul wore his heart on his sleeve, right? There was no beating around the bush with Paul. There was no tiptoeing up to the line of scrimmage. He told you right away what he was all about and what his agenda. There was no guile in the Apostle Paul. And so it is in verse 1 when he says right off the bat, I appeal to you. I beseech you. I implore you. I'm, in a sense, entreating you. I'm begging you. You see, we have to remember Paul here is not a counselor. Paul is, I mean, he he plays the role of counselor, but that's not his fundamental role. He is an apostle, and as an apostle, he's not making a suggestion. He's not dropping a hint. He's not giving us a multiple choice test. He's giving us a charge. And so we need to understand that as Paul speaks, he is speaking on the authority of Christ. 
Yet, Paul's not just wielding a naked authority or a sword. How does he entreat them? He says, as brothers. Now, in the Greek, brothers, it's a generic term, kind of like mankind. It means both men and women. And when we get to Romans 15, we're going to see how Paul addresses in detail many women. So he has men and women in view here. And he entreats them as, as brothers. In other words, whatever Paul is about to charge them with, he's charging them, and never, never forget this, church, because he, he loves them. He's, he, there's something that God has put on his heart that he wants to see God do in them. And verse 2 tells us what that is. And, and this is sort of the end result the thing we want to walk away from, and then we're going to go back and unpack this in detail. But verse 2 says this, I entreat you, here's the end result, that you may discern what is the will of God. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul is going to describe for us the end result of what happens when what God wants us to do is what we want to do. And guys, when you are in that place spiritually in your life, you, you, when, you, when we're there, when you're there, there, there is unspeakable peace and joy. Regardless of whatever else is happening in your life, whatever suffering, whatever struggle, whatever conflict, when you know I am doing exactly what God wants me to do and I want to do it, that is the sweet spot of our fellowship with Christ, to be right in the center of his will. And Paul is going to give us a charge this morning. He's going to give us a process. He's going to call us to something because he wants this to be the result in our life. And so in many ways, this is Paul's Christian manifesto. These two verses are going to be the launching off point by which he applies a whole host of things in these last five chapters. He's going to talk about relationships in the church and spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about politics and government. He's going to talk about what happens when Christians disagree about important issues. But he says it begins here in these two verses, in this charge. And so three, three questions or three statements we're going to answer here. Number one, we're going to talk about the why. We're going to talk about the what. And then finally, the how. The why, the what, the how. And they send you to seminary to do these things, right? Okay, this is not complex, all right? This, these are three questions. They're right there in the text, and let's dive into them. Let's talk about the why. Interestingly, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. What Paul is doing here is he's reaching back all the way to Romans chapter 1, and he's, and he's telling us everything that I've been talking to you about, justification, sanctification, the gospel, truth, righteousness, sin, the power of God, you'll, under, you'll know that you got this when you can do this. You'll, you'll know that you have those things properly in view when, when, when you ask then, Paul, what then shall we do? How then shall we live? Isn't it interesting, Paul does not begin Romans in chapter 12. I mean, that, that's instructive, right? Because a lot of times we might have the attitude, I don't have time for that, 
theology stuff, Pastor Paul, and systematic this, that, and the other, and sovereignty, and just, just tell me what to do. Give me the list. Give me the honeydew list. I'm, I'm ready to go. Never with Paul. See, you never see an imperative from Paul without an indicative. You never see a command without a confession. You never see an application without a truth. Paul says, in fact, all of that is absolutely foundational and crucial. You cannot separate theology and practice, although some of us deeply desire to, right? I, there's some people who are like, I just love theology. It's just theology, but I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I want to apply it. I just want to have it in my head, right? And then argue about it with people online. There's other people who like, I don't have time for theology. It's, I've got to practice. I've got, to, I've got bills to pay and a marriage to fix. And just tell me, again, what to do. And to both of those things, Paul says, slow your roll. They go together. Please understand something, church. Without Romans 1 through 11, you and I are destined to fail with Romans 12, 1 and 2. See, if you walk out of here and say, I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to present my body as a living sacrifice. I know I can do it this time, Pastor Paul, but the Spirit of God is not at the heart of that. The gospel is not animating that and undergirding that and the truth of who God is and who you are in relationship to him. If that's not a part of the package, then we're going to fail. Now, as you have reflected, maybe you've been with us this past season, maybe you haven't, but you, you're still familiar with the book of Romans. If you were going to boil Romans 1 through 11 down into one word, okay, and, and one word that would sort of convey your overarching impression or, or, or the thing that's landed upon you or the thing that carry, has carried the most weight for you, what would that word be? Now, obviously, if you guess Jesus, you're not going to go wrong, okay? Um, and, and you could answer that, I think, correctly in a variety of ways, okay? But I want to point out to you what Paul identifies as his word. Look back at the text. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Literally, in view of the mercies of God, in light of the fact that what we find in Romans 1 through 11 is the overwhelming truth and reality of the mercy of God, go and live this way. Now, it's interesting that Paul picks the word mercy. But when you think about it, actually, it makes a lot of sense. Remember, Paul is the one who has introduced us to the all-powerful, all-sovereign, holy, mighty God in Romans 1 and 2. And he has then told us, in light of who God is, you and I are hopelessly lost. We have no hope. We cannot stand. We're, we're not just mediocre people who make bad decisions. We're rebels who deserve the very wrath of God. And Paul says, in response to that, God doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, God kind of kicks in his sovereign supernatural plan as a means to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I look at all of that 
And all I can exclaim is, by the mercy of God, he has not cast us away. He has not abandoned us. He has not given us what we deserve. Now understand, grace and mercy are just two sides of the same coin, but they're different. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, unexpectedly, as a blessing, maybe even as a, as a, as a prize, as a, as a bill paid or a gift given. Mercy, though, is not getting what you deserve. Now, I want you to think about those times in your life when you have felt the weight of consequence upon you. Maybe, maybe you're a student showing up for a test and you know um, there is no hope for me on this side of the door. Maybe you're in the middle of a conflict and you realize I have done something so dumb that I might lose this relationship. Maybe, maybe you've been called into a, a meeting with your boss or your professor and you know that there is impending doom because you have not performed, you have not done well. Maybe, maybe you, it could just be even a simple, I was going 80 in the 60 and the cop pulled me over and now I'm anticipating, right, the, the wrath that is to come. Now think about those times when you got a reprieve. Remember that? When you, you thought the test was on Wednesday and you were not prepared, but the teacher, for some reason, because they had to watch Netflix the night before, said the test is actually going to be tomorrow, right? And you're like, it's just this weight. Or, or, or you have that conversation and this person doesn't heap judgment upon you, they give you forgiveness, mercy. Do you know what that feeling of reprieve feels like? I think that's what Paul wants us to get in touch with. That as we come out of Romans 1 through 11, he wants us to be astounded. He wants us to be just like the spiritual smelling salts rubbed under our nose and to be reminded we were on the precipice of disaster. But God, by his great mercy, through Jesus Christ. Now, You'll notice that in the ESV, and this is correct, it doesn't say by the mercy of God, in some translations it might, but it says by the mercies of God, that is plural. Now, why is, why is that plural? Because when we think about the mercy of God, right, that's kind of like this one-time thing, like he gives us the, his mercy and forgives us and gives us his son, Jesus Christ, and sets us on the course. And Paul's like, no, 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 if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that's not the way it works. Mercy is not something God doles out one time. Mercy is something you and I are in desperate need of every single day. We have to drink from the fountain of mercy that is the gospel, that is Jesus Christ, every moment of our lives. Because we never grow past our need for grace and mercy, do we? There's never a time in your life where you have gotten past the point where I need the mercy of God. The mercies of God, what does Jeremiah tell us in Lamentations, are what? New every morning. See, as we, as we turn our attention to, to this second point, how should we live, Paul wants us to be enraptured with the mercy of God. Let me just say this before we end this point. Are you feeling just kind of flat this season spiritually? Do you feel just sort of dead 
emotionally, spiritually in your relationship with God. You, you feel stagnant. You sort of feel disconnected. You're in autopilot. Can I just encourage you just to take some moments and reflect anew on the mercies of God? Ask him to remind you of those times when he saved your bacon. Ask him to remind you of those times when he showed up when only he could. Ask him to remind you of, that, of those times about who you were, but now who you are in Christ. And Voskamp calls this having a culture of gratitude of prayerfulness and of thankfulness. And that's what Paul wants us to take into what I think is the heart of this text, this charge to us. Let's look at the second point, the what. All right, now verse 1, I think, gives us the essence of the Christian life, which is saying a lot, but I think it, it is Paul's Christian manifesto given to us. It's his central charge. Look at verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this is where understanding who Paul was and is is really important. Paul is a Jew. He's always been a Jew. But at one time, he was a Pharisee. He was an expert in the law, a scholar in the Torah. He knew the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. And what he does here is he reaches back into the Old Testament, into the book of Leviticus, I keep threatening to have that sermon series of the book of Leviticus, and this might convince me, okay? He reaches back into the book of Leviticus and draws upon some of these technical worship terms. They're, they're cultic terms. I don't mean cult with a capital C, but I mean like religious, things that priests would do in the exercise of their religious duties. So, so in the tabernacle, so for example, present, sacrifice, holy, worship. Paul is drawing on the fact that in the Old Testament, people were commanded to worship God at the tent of meeting. And they were to bring what with them? You did not, it's just like, you know, some of you don't show up for, for a dinner party without a bottle of wine or some flowers. You did not show up at the tabernacle without what? A sacrifice, right? Whether it was an animal, whether it was grain, whether it was fruit, but when they would bring this offering, God would receive it through faith on their behalf and would give them pardon or forgiveness of their sins. Not because the blood of bulls and goats takes away sin. We know it doesn't, the writer of Hebrews says. But those sacrifices, those bloody sacrifices, were meant to remind them that really that should have been their blood on the altar. That in fact, God was staying his hand he was counting that offering on their behalf, awaiting a more perfect offering to come, an eternal offering. Of course, that would be Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul, and this is interesting, he takes this picture of Levitical worship and he says, you know what, this is actually a paradigm for your spiritual life, Four Oaks. See, in response to the mercies of God, there is a summons. God has summoned us to his temple, which we know now is his presence. And when we come into his presence, God asks us 
to present something, an offering. And what is that something? Our very selves. Paul calls it our bodies. And that's, that's a way of describing our whole person, our whole self, everything that we are, everything that we do is to be brought into willful submission to God. Now here's the paradox about this idea that we are indeed people who are a living sacrifice. See, in Christ, we know that we have been made alive. We have been made alive in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so by virtue of the regeneration of our hearts, we are now living. Yet, let's not forget, what would happen to the sacrifices when they were brought to the temple, to the priest? Did the priest like pet the little goat and the little lamb on the head, right? And take them in and they're his pets, did he, you know, did they all watch a, an episode of All Creatures Great and Small and like, you know, just get cozy with it? No, no. What did they do to the offerings? You know, you know, immediate death. They were, in fact, a sacrifice that was living but was no longer living. What is Paul saying here? Do you see the paradox? You who are alive in Christ, if you want to remain alive in Christ and spiritually and experience spiritual vitality, bring yourself to the altar so that you might die. Now, it may not be that God is calling you to die a physical death, although he might. But it's Paul's way of saying that we are bringing our whole life into complete submission. That this, in fact, is a spiritual act of worship. Now, that word spiritual it can be translated reasonable. In some of your translations, it might say that. And what, what does that mean, reasonable? Well, Paul's saying, look, in light of the mercies of God, in light of Jesus laying his life down for you, in light of him being the sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice for you, it's eminently reasonable to think that you now offer yourselves wholly to God. H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy to God. And Paul calls this laying our whole lives down before God as worship. Now, some of you have been around long enough in, in not just this church, but just even in your own Christian walk to remember the, the worship wars. And the worship wars describes a season that the church went through. Is that... In some ways, it still reverberates even to this day. And it really involves, it's a clash of generations, but it's also a clash of, of theological principle and philosophy. What should worship, meaning when we gather as God's people, what should that look like? What, what should we sing? How should we sing it? What instruments should we play? Should they be slow? Should they be fast? Is this a high church culture, a low church culture? Um, do we, you know... And this is where the debates happened. Now, one of the things that happened as a result of that, there was spawned what we call the modern-day worship movement. This is a good thing. This idea of singing anthems and drawing people, regardless of, of as long as there's a common creed, confession in Christ, that we're worshiping God, that we're glorifying God, that worship is not about, not about us, it's about Him. We're gathered together, and that's all good. But one of the, the, the bad things or downsides that's happened through all these worship discussions 
is that people, and maybe some of us, maybe just reflexively and not even consciously, we've come to think that worship is primarily what we do when we come together as Christians, right? We, we sing. A lot of times we call that the work, call Pastor Joe the worship leader. He leads us in singing. Obviously, he's doing a lot more than that. He's leading us biblically throughout the service. And certainly, everything we do in our service is worship. This is worship. Singing is worship. Giving is worship. Fellowshipping is worship. Coming to the Lord's table, that's worship. And that is vital, crucial to the life and health of the church. Here's the thing, though. That's not the kind of worship Paul is speaking about here. Paul does speak about that kind of worship. That's just not his concern right here. Paul's concern here is for us to understand that worship is not just the couple of hours we come together on any given Sunday. Worship, spiritual worship, encompasses all of our lives and everything that we do. Worship is life. So remember, in the Old Testament, when people brought a sacrifice not to be too grotesque, they didn't bring a part of the animal, right? Hmm, let's get his leg and take that. That, That'll suffice, right? We'd say, no, no, that's silly. And of course it is. Sacrifice involved the whole animal. In fact, there's, there's detailed instructions in the book of Leviticus about what to do with every part of the animal. This animal you you sacrifice this part of the animal you ate afterwards, this part of the animal you burned, but none of it was put to waste, right? All of it was a holy, fragrant offering to God. When Paul uses this word bodies, he's reminding us, right, that worship is us bringing all of ourselves to God. Our money, our spending, our children, our hobbies, our travel, our marriages, our parenting, all of these things, the way that we do them, are an act of worship. In fact, in all those areas, I will say you cannot not worship. You're worshiping and valuing something when we do those things. And this would have landed like big time, especially with the Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. Why? Most of them have been reared in Greek thought, uh, Platonistic thought. This idea that there is this sharp distinction, right, between the spiritual and the material. And the Greeks believe the material, eh, not that big a deal. It's not holy. It's not, whatever you do with your body is up to you, right? It's, It's the inner man. It's the spiritual reflective self. And guys, let me just say that in every way, that is not biblical. See, in, our, in, 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 this, in this Platonistic thought really endures to this day, doesn't it? This comes out in more sophisticated ways. Well, Pastor Paul, God doesn't really care about sex. Come on. I mean, like, it's just sex. You know, it's just my body. I mean, like, God knows my heart. God knows I'm sincere. God, 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 God knows I'm well-intentioned. I mean, Pastor Paul, that, that's just my work. You know, and, and, and I have to be kind of that way at my work to kind of do these other things, and, but I'm a different way with my family and my children and those things. And God says, those are not spiritual distinctions. Those are man-made distinctions. 
everything we do is a matter of holy worship to God. Let's be thinking about this for a second and just let me start going from preaching to meddling just for a second, okay? So we all have our no-fly zones with God, don't we? We all have our areas where we have put God in the friend zone. Like, you're not Lord here, you're just kind of co-pilot. Where in your life have you left God on read, so to speak? Where, 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 where have you heard his command and it's been like, eh, that's, that one is a little off limits? Well, let me just share something personal with you guys, how this has landed on me. You, you've heard me make jokes over the year about losing weight and working out and eating and all those sort of things, and you might be a little perplexed by saying, well, Pastor Paul, that sounds kind of like a humble brag because, I mean, you're not the best-looking guy, but you're not the worst-looking guy, right, in the whole world. But the struggle is real because for a long time, I've engaged those sorts of things, food and drink and fun, as if they were somehow independent of my worship of God. Sometimes we have to get right down to it and realize we don't have an eating problem. We have a worship problem. We, we, we don't have a lying problem. We have a worship problem. Fill, fill, fill in the blank wherever your no-fly zone is with God. Just think, as I've just kind of come to realize, you know what? I've just kind of treated this area of my life, food, for example, as just sort of my no-fly zone, right? It's for, my, it's for me. Help my anxiety, my comfort, my boredom, stress, what is it for you? And before we move on from this charge, I have to ask you, do you agree with the premise? Do you agree that as a Christian, your identity is now fully wrapped up in Christ? And, and here's the hard part, but it's the good part. You don't belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And under this last point, we want to try to answer we can't, as, as much as we can, how does that happen? How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Brings us to our last point, the how. Look back, look back at the text, verse 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So two words to draw your attention. They're synonyms, but they're, but they're a little different. One is the word conformed. Um, Cisco, sounds like Pizza Hut, okay? But anyway, schizomadio, okay? To fashion or pattern something after. In other words, to make a copy of something. That's conform. Transform, metamorphosis, you, it's in the Greek, you, it's, you recognize that, of course. It means to, to change, to, to go from one state of being into another. And Paul says, conform, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Here's a reminder for us. You are never not being conformed to something. 
you are never in neutral in your spiritual life. As dependent creatures, please hear this, and this is God-given, we were created to take on the form of what's around us. That was the way God intended it in the garden with Adam and Eve, unhindered fellowship. Who were they taking the form of? They were taking the form of God. They were imitating him. They were being, they were being conformed into this image. But in this broken, sinful, broken-down world, we will also take on the form of those things that are around us. And that includes a whole host of mindsets and worldviews and values which are antithetical to God. And here's the scary thing about this. You don't even have to try to be conformed to the world. It is the default mode of every person born on planet Earth. You don't, you don't even have to do anything special. Just, just, just live your life, right? And for those of you who became Christians later in life, you understand this, I think, better than many of us who've been Christians for, for longer. See, when you're a non-Christian, you don't think about what it means to act and think like a non-Christian. You just do it, right? You just live. You, you're like a fish in the ocean that doesn't know that it's swimming in water. Being a non-Christian comes naturally, and you adopt the world's vision for sexuality and money and relationships and friendships, and you're not even aware of it. That's how naturally it comes. But even as a Christian, please understand this, and understand, Paul addresses this to Christians, so obviously this is a danger for us. It is still possible, even though you have been indwelt with the Spirit of Christ as a Christian, to be conformed to this world. Again, it's easy. Just don't read your Bible. Or just make it to church once a quarter. Or don't be in a community group or Bible study. Or don't be around other Christians that you can share your life with and be accountable to. But do, absolutely do, spend more time on the urgent, on your sports, on politics, on what's happening in the, in the world and in media. Just spend time, more time with those things than you do with Jesus and the Old Testament prophets and the letters of Paul. Guys, it'll happen naturally. That is why Paul contrasts conforming to being transformed, right? Because you can agree with everything I just said. You can say, you're right, Pastor Paul, I'm being conformed, I'm not even trying, I'm just kind of an autopilot. But that's not enough. See, you have to replace one kind of transformation with another. Church, you cannot steal your... Your, your will to say, you know what, I'm not going to be conformed to this world, I'm not going to be conformed to this world, I'm not going to be conformed to this world, I'm not going to look, not going to look. What, what do you do when somebody tells you not to look, right? You look, right? You have to have your mind renewed. You have to have one way of thinking, acting, being, walking, replaced with another. The spirit of the world has to be replaced by the Spirit of Christ. And how does that happen? And, and, Paul, and this is all over Paul's letters. Here, here's an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's the word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, this is, I think, maybe the mo- one of the most crucial verses in all of the Bible about how change really happens. Paul says, here is how change happens. You behold, you look at the glory of Christ. And what happens as you look at the glory of Christ, you behold it, you meditate upon it, you study it, then slowly but surely you will be changed one degree of glory to another. Which begs the question, where do we behold the glory of Christ? Of course, church, you know this answer. You cannot know Jesus apart from his word. Jesus said, the whole Old Testament is about me, so study it, read it, meditate on it. He commissioned his apostles to write and to lead and govern the church, and their letters are preserved for us in the New Testament, and Jesus says, study it, meditate on it. And I don't mean just skim it, but guys, do you have a time where you are meditating over the word? where you are marinating in it, where you are thinking, you are praying, you're beseeching. You're cr- maybe, maybe you're crying. See, a lot of times, it's very popular in today's age to say, we worship Jesus, not the Bible. And that's true, we don't worship the Bible, we do worship Jesus. But oftentimes what that means is, when we run across something in the Bible that doesn't seem right to us when we compare it to Jesus, let's chuck it, right? Jesus is the ultimate authority, which begs the question, where do we learn about Jesus? Guys, you cannot know Jesus apart from his word. It should go in reverse. When you read something in the Bible that you don't like, that you don't think is reflective of what you think God or Jesus ought to be like, chuck it, not Jesus. Otherwise, you are just worshiping a Jesus made in your own image. And this is what Paul is pressing upon the church. 1 Thessalonians 2, and we're almost done. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. And Paul says, as we come to behold the glory of Christ and the word of God, we have minds that are renewed and that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And what, what is the end result here? That you begin to walk more in step with Christ. That what God wants you to do more and more becomes what you actually want to do. It's not just about making decisions in terms of this will of God, although it is that. It's about having a whole scope of life, having having a perspective that everything I am and have belongs to him, and I'm bringing it under his care and under his word, and my mind is being renewed, and I'm relearning old ways. I'm no longer being 
conformed to the world predominantly, but I'm being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me say this and we're done. Every time you see the word you in this passage, look back at Romans 12. I appeal to you. Um, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. We need to realize those are not in the singular. Every one of these yous is plural because Paul is giving this charge to the church. Paul is saying this spiritual act of worship is something you engage in as the family of God, as the people of God together. And if you're really wrestling with, what does this look like for me, Pastor Paul? Maybe this is the season where this goes from just a you and God thing to a this is me and the family of God thing. And you, you heard the announcement with all the opportunities and groups and relationships and Bible studies where this, you know, the fall is a natural season to say, you know what? I need a reset. I, I need to get in a rhythm. I need to get on a different track. And Paul's exhortation is not merely to us individually. It is absolutely individual and it's absolutely personal, but it's so much more. Because you and I cannot live Romans 12, 1 and 2 without each other, without the body of Christ. That's why we end our sermons coming to the table together. We are making a declaration that we belong to Jesus and we belong to one another. So Paul says, I beseech thee, brothers, I appeal to you, brothers, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice because Jesus has offered himself to you. Let's pray.